0: Uh, I'm supposing that uh, most of you have heard uh, that the recession is over. And I also suspect that very few of you feel like the recession is over. Uh, So let me explain. Obviously, the unemployment rate is still very high nationwide, 9.7%. It's still high as well in West Virginia. In fact, it's still rising in West Virginia, unlike the nation as a whole. So about the best analogy I've been able to think of is... It's sort of like taking a hard foul on the way to a basket, uh, to use a basketball analogy. The recession, at least the way economists think of it, uh, is over when you hit the floor. But you don't really feel like it's over until you've gotten up, dusted yourself off, and uh, gotten back on your feet. And even then, you you probably have a few lingering bruises that you're carrying with you on the way to the foul line. So we're in a situation where we've, we've... we've hit the floor. The consensus is it happened last summer, hit the bottom, and um, we've been in the process of getting back up on our feet uh, ever since. That represents recovery, at least the way the economists define it. But it's clear that the the pain is is very present uh, for many of us, and we're a long way from a full recovery. So that's it, kind of in a nutshell, where we are. And the rest of this Talk uh, this evening. I'll fill you in on a little bit of details about the economy and share my view about where the economy is headed, um, both nationally and here at the state level. And uh, then I'd like to hear directly from you um, about your, your experiences um, or what's on your mind about the economy or, or monetary policy or anything else the Fed's connected with, um, uh, or to ask any questions you'd like. Before I begin, though, I should note that I, as always, I only speak for myself. Uh, not for other members of the Federal Open Market Committee. We have a, a sort of a federated structure on where each individual policymakers heading our own institutions, uh, shaping our own views. So um, uh, that's the usual disclaimer I have to provide. So the recession that appears to have just ended uh, last year, it ranks as one of the deepest on record, uh, the deepest since um, the, the Great Depression. It was led by the plunge in housing construction that followed the boom in housing construction that occurred between 1995 and 2005. As that housing slump became more severe, it started spilling over into the rest of the economy, and that's essentially what caused the recession. Now, I could cite a slew of dismal statistics that would characterize this recession, but I'll confine myself to just one in particular. After peaking at the end of 2007, the total number of people employed in the United States has fallen by over 8 million. Uh, That's wiped out all of the job gains in the previous expansion from the recession of 2001 to the end of 2007. Um, And West Virginia payrolls also peaked a little bit later, the third quarter of 2008. They've fallen by over 30,000 since then, Sounds like a lot less, but that's 4.2% of the workforce here. A tremendous fall in the number of jobs uh, in our economy, both in West Virginia and the nation as a whole. Now, to put the national economic conditions in perspective, let me start where the recession really had its origins, the housing market. And there, we have seen some stabilization. Several indicators of sales and construction. Uh, have hit low points uh, early last year and have risen modestly since then, although they've been choppy in the last couple of months. Even one widely followed index of home prices in the U.S. rose a seasonally adjusted 4.4% from May of last year to January of this year, the latest month for which we have numbers. And housing investment in the fourth quarter of last year made its first positive contribution to growth since the second quarter of 2008. So for for, um, well over a year, housing had been a drag on growth, not a contributor to growth, but in the fourth quarter of last year, it became a positive contribution for the first time in a while. So I think this positive sign is encouraging and I think it really indicates and shows that housing is no longer a drag on growth and is gonna be uh, not holding back growth going forward. How much it contributes uh, is a good question. given the significant overbuilding that occurred during the boom years (coughs) housing is not going to contribute a lot it's likely to the expansion Um, that's going to severely limit the the fact that we have more houses than we need nationwide is going to severely limit the ability of housing to contribute to growth going forward that's in contrast to past recessions when housing's usually fallen sharply in the recession like it did this time, but rebounded sharply as well. Now, to move from housing to consumer spending, uh, it posted solid gains over the second half of last year, and it's widely expected uh, to have increased in the first quarter of this year at a pretty solid rate. Even new vehicle sales, uh, which were a major factor in the decline in consumer spending during the recession, have increased from a low of 9.1 million units uh, to in February of last year to 11.8 million units in March of this year. <clears throat> that March figure was the industry's best performance without the aid of government intervention or incentive programs since the recession uh, began. So let me be clear here. Consumers are by no means exuberant. Uh, there was the savings rate, fraction of income people put away, has risen uh, from 1%... As the recession began in early 2008 to over 3% now, that likely reflects a a combination of things. Apprehension about income prospects, whether they're going to lose their job, uh, whether they're going to have a job. Um, A desire to pay down debt, a desire to rebuild wealth depleted by the broad erosion in financial asset and home prices uh, that has occurred going into this recession. But the recent recovery in equity prices has helped household financial positions. And the stabilization in home values that's occurred, I talked about before, has also contributed to what we've seen, which has been an upturn in consumer spending. So I think the stabilization of, broadly speaking, most households' financial situation has been a positive. So let me turn to businesses now. And uh, the striking thing here is that spending on new equipment and software by businesses Uh, which fell over 20% in the recession, has also reversed course in the second half of last year and is also on a a positive track. Affirming of business spending on capital goods may seem sort of uh, odd, uh, incongruous, in light of the low levels of measured capacity utilization. You see these numbers. The capacity utilization is very low in many industries. But that excess capacity doesn't mean that it isn't worthwhile to deploy new equipment and software. I think for a lot of firms, there are a number of projects out there to consolidate the the IT infrastructure they have, to improve business processes, to improve services, um, pull out costs, um, but also improve the way their business does things. For example, information equipment and software, which is a significant source of high-tech growth over the last two decades, by itself contributed nearly a full percentage point Uh, to the growth in real GDP during the fourth quarter of last year. Even business investment in transportation equipment added over a quarter of a percentage point to GDP in the fourth quarter. Now, despite all these favorable demand-side factors, consumer spending, housing, business investment in equipment and software, um, the the relative strength of GDP in the fourth quarter, it grew at 5.6%, Um, actually surprised a lot of analysts. Now, of course, part of that strength in the fourth quarter reflected um, a substantial swing uh, toward inventory accumulation, uh, and that provided a boost to GDP growth that quarter for sort of technical reasons. But even if you exclude inventories and what happened to that from the GDP numbers, if if you do that, you get a statistic that's called final sales. Uh, It's in the GDP report, look for final sales. Um, Final sales is just what everyone bought, apart from the stuff that was produced and added to inventory, so what people actually paid money for. Um, GDP managed a respectable 1.7% growth in the fourth quarter. Now, that's not a lot. That's not its long-run average. That's not healthy enough yet, um, but still it was a respectable gain in the fourth quarter. This number, final sales, um, is going to warrant special attention, at least in my mind, in the months ahead. Um, as a way of assessing uh, how rapidly this recovery is strengthening and uh, taking hold. So I've been focusing so far in the areas where the economy has been strong, where improvement has been evident. There are other areas where we face some major challenges, no question about it. So commercial real estate is one of those. In commercial real estate, construction is falling, vacancy rates are rising, property values are falling, Uh, And that's eroding uh, the equity position of a lot of owners. And no one expects a quick reversal of these negative trends. As a result, business investment spending on structures, buildings, um, plants, office buildings, um, retail stores, and the like, um, is likely to be a sizable drag on U.S. growth in the near term. So taking these all together... in this this sort of struggle between the positive and the negative forces affecting U.S. growth, the labor market is ultimately going to play a pivotal role. And here, um, it's just a fact that more jobs mean more income, means more consumer confidence, more consumer spending. More consumer spending will prompt businesses to continue hiring and investing, and it'll help governments raise revenues uh, that will help especially state and local governments uh, uh, keep programs intact. So if you would agree with me on this point, then I think you'll agree that our latest employment release was the most encouraging sign that we've seen to date that the recession is uh, getting put behind us. Um, In March, uh, the U.S. economy added 162,000 jobs on net, um, and goods-producing industries that are most sensitive cyclically to recessions and expansions added over 40,000 jobs. Now, some of these gains were due to the hiring of census workers. That's obviously going away uh, over the summer. And some of those gains in March reflected a bounce back from some weather-related losses in February of uh, this year with the storms in the Mid-Atlantic area. But even apart from these special factors, the month of March made major contribution uh, to the, a positive first quarter uh, for labor growth, labor market Growth, Uh, the first positive quarter for the labor market since the fourth quarter of 2007. Uh, That was just before we took that hard foul and the recession began. While even more optimistic forecasters don't really expect a rapid growth in employment this year, the labor market does seem to be lifting off the floor. Um, And so this March report was quite notable. Employment growth had been flat, essentially indistinguishable from zero for several months before that at the national level. This marks the the labor market finally healing, as opposed to consumer spending and some other categories that healed in the middle of last year. So let me make one final comment here, Um, and that has to do with the state of small businesses in the United States. This recession brought unprecedented job losses Losses, to businesses with less than 50 employees, one sort of common definition of small business. That group represents 90% of all business establishments by number, uh, and, and it employs 40% of all workers nationwide. And it's even more important in West Virginia, notable fact that small businesses defined this way account for more than half of all workers in, in the state of West Virginia. Now, tight credit often gets the blame for holding back small business expansion these days. But according to a recent survey by the National Federation of Independent Businesses, weak sales are by far the number one problem facing small businesses and credit availability is way down the list. It's important to recognize as well that many businesses of all kinds are naturally facing tougher credit terms in a recession. This always happens as in a soft economy Revenue prospects are more uncertain than in a strong economy. So you take two firms, you know, identical balance sheets, identical current conditions. In a weak economy, that firm is going to be a little less credit worthy than in a strong economy. Moreover, I'd argue that the, the proper benchmark here when we're thinking about this is the ability of the banking system as a whole to supply an appropriate amount of credit since any one given bank could be shrinking their balance sheet in response to losses or other things that have affected their willingness to lend, while other sectors of the banking sector might be expanding. So this might be a time more than ever when borrowers might need to shop around in order to obtain the credit that they really deserve. So let me put the whole picture together. I think the most likely outcome for 2010 is that the national economy will grow at a moderate rate. Consumer spending is going to gradually pick up pace. Businesses are going to continue to expand outlays, I believe, on equipment and software, particularly technology equipment. And those two components of demand are likely to overcome any drag from the decline that's likely to continue in commercial construction or the weakness in state and local um, government spending. For West Virginia, the outlook is much the same although how we got here is different. The recession arrived later here than for the rest of the nation. Uh, and Job losses only really began uh, late in 2008, uh, but they've continued in current months. So West Virginia seems to be a little out of phase. Unemployment also rose later in the Mountain State, jumping from a low of 3.8 percent, very low, in October of 2008, to more than double that rate in just a few months. And, and it's still continuing to rise Um, at uh, 9.5%, fairly sharply right now. Now, the strength in energy markets is the obvious factor that probably was what delayed the onset of the downturn here. Uh, The strength of the energy markets in early 2008 when there was that big run-up in commodity and energy prices worldwide. In addition, the West Virginia housing market did not experience the outsized gains uh, that uh, were experienced in some other states, uh, particularly the ones at the center of the subprime Uh, Fiasco, California, Arizona, Nevada, Florida. And as a result, home prices and residential construction have not declined quite as sharply here as in those other states. Now, while existing home sales in West Virginia have risen consistently in recent months, residential construction here remains sluggish as it has for the nation as a whole. With the late entry into this recession, West Virginia seems to be following a somewhat slower path to recovery. And yet I note that the West Virginia University's Bi- um, Bureau of Business and Economic Research, a representative of whom is sitting uh, at the head table here, uh, has forecast modest job growth for the second half of this year, consistent with the national job outlook. And that's a forecast I endorse. Um, great great group there, does great analysis, and, and our outlook for the West Virginia economy lines up with that pretty well. Of course, there are always risks to any outlook. The picture I've painted could turn out differently on either side. So in the current environment, you could point to the labor market and note that it could recover more slowly uh, than many expect, in which case consumer spending uh, would pick up pace more gradually, and that would dampen growth going forward. But on the other hand, these things are kind of hard to predict at turning points like this, household incomes, and household confidence, more importantly, in their future income prospects, uh, could rebound more vigorously than we expect. Uh, and in that case, consumer spending could pick up more briskly, and we'd have growth more rapid than, than what I and many others are foreseeing. I think it's also worth mentioning a risk that seems particularly prominent in this recovery. Firms that face major uncertainties surrounding federal policies on trade, the environment, financial services, uh, and until recently, healthcare. For a business considering a commitment to new capital spending or new hiring, it's, it can be difficult to estimate the after-tax return on an endeavor in, in an environment that's so rich with uh, uncertain proposals uh, to change the rules of the road uh, facing them going forward. So this risk could be particularly relevant to West Virginia, um, particularly its coal mining industry, where there's uncertainty that's become particularly elevated in the past year. No matter how one stands on the environmental issues involved, changing the regulatory landscape will have a depressing effect on out- investment outlays in the short run. So let me turn now to the outlook for inflation and monetary policy, and there, by all accounts, Uh, from government data to reports we get on our own surveys, inflation remains benign. It's averaged about 1.5% since early last year. The risk of a pronounced decline in inflation has diminished substantially in my view. This is something that got a lot of commentary. There was a lot of speculation about this early last year when the magnitude of the increase in unemployment uh, came into view. But we're gonna need to be careful as this expansion strengthens to keep inflation in check and to keep inflation expectations in check because experience has shown that an upward drift in inflation expectations uh, can be very costly to unwind. To keep inflation contained, we at the Federal Reserve will need to be careful about when and how we withdraw the very considerable monetary stimulus uh, that's now in place This requires care during any recovery. So I should emphasize, qualitatively, this is not distinct from the problem we face in any recovery. But this time, there's a little bit of complication. We're going to have two instruments at our disposal for withdrawing stimulus, not just one, as is usually the case. The Fed traditionally, the way it operates, has been to target what's called the overnight federal funds rate. This is the rate that banks charge each other for interbank loans. And what we do is appropriately adjust the supply that we provide of monetary liabilities, bank reserves, and currency. We adjust the supply so that it equals demand at the interest rate target we want. So if we want a lower target, we increase money. If we want a higher target, we reduce uh, money. And that um, was our way of influencing monetary, pol- monetary conditions and, and the rest of the economy. And Varying the Fed funds rate um, has a, a, an effect on a broad range of other market interest rates, and that's the channel by which monetary policy affects the economy. Since October of 2008, um, as the bankers in the room are well aware, we've had the authority at the Federal Reserve System to pay interest on the deposits banks have with us. They're called reserve accounts or bank reserves. Um, and uh, that gives us the, vi- the ability, I won't go into why, but it gives us the ability to change interest rates without changing the money supply. So we've um, increased the size of our balance sheet and bank reserves fairly substantially. The size of um, the money that we supply has gone from under $1 trillion to over $2 trillion. Um, but we've been able to do that and pay interest on reserves. This gives us the ability to either raise interest rates or reduce that money supply, and we could do them independently. So we have two tools to choose from now uh, rather than one. So we've been working at the Federal Reserve on some mechanisms by which we can drain bank reserves take out that monetary stimulus. Um, And uh, the names of them are reverse repurchase agreements and there's a term deposit facility. I don't expect you to remember those or for those to be meaningful to you. Um, All you need to know is that both of those would amount to the Federal Reserve banks issuing debt. And by selling debt, banks would pay us with the reserves in their account and that would extinguish the reserves in their account and reduce the supply of money uh, that the Federal Reserve System provides the economy. So I think these are potentially useful as contingency measures, but I have to say that my preference would be to rely primarily on the sales of the agency debt, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac debt, and the Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac guaranteed mortgage-backed securities that we've bought so much of over the last year or so. Such an approach, by selling our assets rather than issuing our own debt, would move us more rapidly back to a a normal way of conducting monetary policy, by which I mean a situation in which, on our balance sheet, we hold only treasuries. People call it a treasuries-only approach to monetary policy. Um, It would also more rapidly reduce the extent to which our huge holdings of mortgage-backed securities are distorting, potentially, the allocation of credit in our economy. Now, there's no reason why our sales of mortgage-backed securities at a steady, moderate, pre-announced rate, which is the way we did the purchase program after all, there's no reason that would need to be disruptive to markets for those securities. In fact, by adding to the floating supply in the private sector, um, it should improve market liquidity, which, according to reports that we've seen, have been hampered by the lack of supply, the fact that we've taken so much supply off the market. Looking beyond these near-term challenges to monetary policy, however, our economy does face several other significant challenges in the longer term, and I'm going to mention and talk about two. One of these is the path of future federal budget deficits implied by current and planned fiscal policies that are on the books. The government's debt its a simple proposition, but it's important to keep in mind. The government's debt cannot grow at a rate much faster than the economy as a whole indefinitely. It cannot grow indefinitely at a rate much faster than the economy as a whole. So ultimately something has to change. Either taxes are raised, either spending is reduced, or the real value of debt is eroded through an increase in inflation, an outcome that the Federal Reserve is committed to preventing. So that leaves two things, either taxes are raised or spending uh, is reduced. Um, I was was talking to Senator uh, Oliverio, uh, and he said here in West Virginia there's actually three things when there's a a budget problem like this. You can either raise taxes, um, reduce spending, or increase gambling. Now, I'm not not sure if that's relevant at the national level, but might have to include that in future speeches. Uh, If we fail to establish some credible plan, though, at the national level, if we don't get our act together, we're just risking a, a, a crisis. We're risking a disruptive resolution to this issue going forward. The longer we go without this, the more it's likely we're going to dampen growth the way we do this. And the other way to look at this is that um, the, the sooner we start preparing, the lower the cost overall. You know, picture having to pay a debt over a number of years you pick the number of years. The bigger the number, the lower the cost over time, even taking into account how many years involved, because the, the pain of spreading it out over is significantly diminished, spreading it out over a number of years. So, our financial system is the second challenge I'd like to discuss with you tonight. In particular, what I have in mind is how it's going to perform in a future financial crisis. And I think... That could pose significant challenges for us. Now, I've I've argued elsewhere in speeches I've given uh, in the last several months that the most important step to containing financial instability of the type we saw in this financial crisis is to establish clear and credible limits around what what I've we call the the federal financial safety net. Uh, the the implicit backstop that the government gives to financial institutions of various types. That safety net has grown considerably as a result of this crisis. Richmond Fed economists estimate that given the precedence that we have established in 2008, nearly 59% of the liabilities of the financial sector, you take all the firms in the financial sector, take all their liabilities, about 59% of those liabilities enjoy either explicit or implicit government support. So that would include bank deposits, that's explicit support, pensions guaranteed by the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation, that represents explicit support. Those two basically are about 22% of financial sector liabilities. The rest is liabilities of banks and bank holding companies that are implicitly guaranteed, not explicitly insured. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, for example, implicitly guaranteed, not explicitly insured. That number, 59%, is up from 45% uh, as of 1999. This is what the too-big-to-fail problem is a substantial number of large financial institutions viewed as likely to benefit from government support in a crisis. I believe that this crisis and the attendant expansion of the financial safety net was the result of there being no clear limits on the government's legal authority to protect creditors of a failing financial institution. Now, there are these bills that are being considered in Congress, and in the next couple of weeks, you'll read about the Senate deliberations on this issue, financial regulatory reform. A bill has already passed the House. So in those bills, they very clearly express the desire to see losses imposed on failing firms uh, and their creditors. And that's right. That's absolutely something we have to do. But on the other hand, both of these bills provide wide-ranging discretion to the Secretary of Treasury and the FDIC, to designate some financial firms as systemically important and to use funds held by the government in their resolution. But to my mind, the resulting ambiguity about what our real policy is about rescues of financial institutions is just going to perpetuate the forces that brought us too big to fail to begin with. Now, improved regulations are necessary, and we've been doing that at the Federal Reserve. We've been working on learning the lessons we need to learn from what we went through, improving our practices, improving uh, the discipline we bring to the supervisory process, especially for the largest institutions. And that will help contain the risks uh, of actions that lead to the next crisis. But new risk-taking arrangements often arise just outside the regulatory regime. So people talk about the shadow banking industry. That was a a reaction to the regulations we imposed on large institutions over the course of the 80s and the 90s and earlier in this decade. And it was an effort to bypass uh, those regulations. If authorities allow creditors to lose money at a failing firm, then creditors are likely to pull away from another failing firm that looks the same. They're likely to conclude that authorities are not gonna support that other institution as well. And as a result, authorities, you know, policymakers feel compelled to intervene. They just feel driven to intervene because um, it would cause too much disruption to have markets believe that they're not gonna intervene in other similar cases. Now, subsequent regulations after a crisis always can rein in some risk-taking, but then that just sets the stage for another cycle of bypass of those regulations, risk-taking, crisis, rescue, more regulation, bypass, risk-taking, crisis, rescue, regulation. You get the idea. So to my mind, it's a discretionary safety net with no set boundaries that feeds the cycle because it gives market participants a reason to believe that new complex credit arrangements that are risky, even if they're outside of the regulated regime, are going to get support anyway. Doing this, pursuing this course with an ambiguous safety net, just means an ever-growing reach of financial regulation. We're going to be chasing that risk-taking outward and outward into the financial system. And what that does in the end is undermine market discipline. It undermines the incentives that creditors have to limit the risk-taking of an institution that they're exposed to, that they don't believe is going to have support. Um, And that market discipline, that alignment of incentives, is what keeps a healthy, well-functioning, competitive financial system Uh, acting in a way that's aligned with societal interests. And it's when those interests diverge because of the safety net that we get major problems. So an ever-growing safety net will also divert resources away from uh, productive channels and towards uh, looking for ways to get in the safety net. So I think that, in my opinion, striking preserving this balance between the safety net Regulation and market discipline is vital to ensuring that financial markets make a positive contribution to the resiliency and growth of the American economy over the long run. Despite these challenges, though, um, I remain fundamentally optimistic about the American economy, Um, that resilience is something that is incredibly striking at times like this, Uh, that so many people are starting new businesses now, Uh, that uh, we're able to withstand the blows of a substantial decline in the demand for resources to build houses, Um, and we're able to slowly over time manage a process uh, that doesn't spiral downward, uh, but instead shifts those resources, frees those resources up, and shifts those resources to the next productive use on the horizon. People ask me, uh, what is it that's going to take us out of this recession? What if, what's going to drive the recovery? Um, you know, as if, well, it was the housing boom, before that it was the tech boom, and the, the next one is going to be something. Well, you know, the nature of growth is that you can't predict those things, that it's, that it's the result of the innovative spirit and the spirit of of applying those innovations in productive, useful ways, and our economy's flexibility, its ability to take new ideas and deploy them. That's the real wellspring of productivity and growth uh, and dynamism in our economy, and I'm confident coming through this, um, even as bleak as things looked at the end of 2008, I'm confident coming through this, uh, that we've demonstrated that resilience again and that we have brighter days ahead. I thank you very much for paying attention to me uh, and coming out to, to share your thoughts with us. I very much look forward Uh, To hearing your comments. Thank you very much. I think we have time for a couple of questions. Great, thank you. Now you can really hear me. These microphones Um, are great, aren't they? Yeah, they are. Earlier in your conversation, you suggested, as as we know, that the uh, the housing market, uh, uh, the nascent recovery, is pretty weak at at, at this point. And uh, I guess at the end of March, it was stated that the Federal Reserve would stop its purchases of mortgage-backed securities. And and I actually had this question in mind earlier suggesting, well, the way rates moved up, they didn't move up real hard, is the Fed still actually – behind the scenes active in purchases, but, but hearing your statement that gee, your, your suggestion might be to actually start selling those securities, um, is the Fed prepared to jump back in and start repurchasing if they're not still doing so now to, uh, to keep the asset recovery going? Um, first of all, we're engaging in no secret purchases. Did I know of? No, but no, really, we're not uh, engaging in any secret purchases. Um, We we announced, and we're very clear to the market, we announce all our operations as they take place. Um, We announced many months in advance that um, the end of March would bring the end of our purchase program. Um, You know, back in March of 2009, we set a a target of of up to one and a quarter trillion for the mortgage-backed securities, uh, another target lower for the agency debt. We finished buying the agency debt last fall, and we – finished buying the mortgage-backed securities um, at the end of March. So having gotten there, um, uh, you know, we weren't sure what the world would look like um, at the point when we reached this. Um, and so we've we've always said we're going to re-examine all our policies as we go forward to evaluate the need, whether, uh, whether we need to change that purchase program. Uh, and that's the same thing we do with interest rates. You know, we always stand ready to adjust our interest rate policy as as new data comes in, um, so I, I think at this point it 's pretty clear we we don't need um, the stimulus that would be provided by further mortgage backed security purchases. I think that's pretty clear right now i think I think the um, you know the the recovery is well enough established for us to to be able to check that box um, when um, you know and uh, in what volumes you know we begin to turn around and drain reserves and how we do it, whether we use these two mecha- new mechanisms or asset sales, that's something that, you know, we're going to have to wrestle with in the months ahead. Um, I've talked about how my preference is that when the time comes, we drain reserves through mortgage-backed security sales. Um, but that's, um, you know, that's, that's a little ways off at least. Uh, you know, it's not going to happen this month or probably next month. Um, so I think we're okay where we are now. Um, but, um, you know, again, I'll emphasize this is new territory for us to have such a huge portfolio of mortgage-backed securities and have such a huge amount of money relative to the economy that we're supplying. And, um, you know, there is a risk that if we don't pull it out soon enough, we w- we'll get behind the curve and inflation will accelerate um, and pick up. And then it'll be very costly to unwind that should that, should that come true. Any other secret plans, you want to know about? I think you just uh, mentioned for the first time inflation in your talk, and now with a lot of excess capacity in the economy, and certainly that's been a depressant on prices, but we're starting to see some uh, upping of commodity prices, particularly of crude oil, and we're looking at the possibility that China may be uh, upward uh, evaluating the yun, which will put some pressures upwards on import prices. Uh, Where do you see inflation starting to rear its head, maybe later on, third, fourth quarter this year, and what implications will that have for monetary policy? Well, I hope it doesn't rear its head at all. Uh, I hope it just stays steady around 1.5%. But you've identified commodity prices, energy prices, as uh, something that is a risk to the inflation outlook. In the last expansion, we saw a broad upsweep in energy and commodity prices that at the beginning of the expansion was unanticipated and was very large. Um, and, um, you know, at the time, we had good reasons to think energy prices would be flat just by picking off what was implied by the futures markets. And those tend to be, on average, over time, the best predictors of future paths for those for those commodities that have those liquid futures prices. We could do the same thing now, but I think we need to be a little more vigilant than we were in the last expansion about the potential for another broad upsweep in um, commodity prices as the economy, um, you know, as the recovery proceeds and as the the economy, as the world economy picks up and and gains steam. Um, An interesting wrinkle there is that... um, you know, is is this dynamic about overall inflation versus core inflation. And, um, you know, when the futures curve is flat, it's tempting to look at oil and commodity price changes as bygones whenever they come in higher than expected. Um, So, you know, uh, at the beginning of the year, maybe you think energy prices are going to be flat because the futures price curve is flat. So you predict future, you know, gasoline prices are going to be flat, and you think core is going to be you know, around one and a half or two, so you're saying, we're fine. Then energy prices double, you know, in three months or something like that. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but just as a hypothetical. Now, if that happens, well, you know, if the futures curve is flat, you're going to think, well, all right, no more energy inflation after this. But then that keeps, in the last expansion, that kept happening again and again, and we kept thinking, well, all right, that one's behind us. But repeatedly, energy prices pushed overall inflation above core, And we ended up over that expansion with inflation was a bit higher than we expected. Not dramatically higher, but a bit higher than some of us would have liked, would have liked to keep it on too. So that's another dynamic it's really difficult to wrestle with as well. We're gonna have to keep an eye on that. Good question.